This is a fascinating conversation on Vietnam, COVID-19, and political economy with two fascinating guests. First is Mike Tatarski, the editor-in-chief of The Saigoneer and a freelance reporter based out of Vietnam, and Mai Trung, a PhD candidate at the University of Arizona. Our conversation looks at both the news aspects of Vietnam's stunning success in controlling the coronavirus pandemic, as well as looking at the geopolitical implications of this. Why has Vietnam's success not been more celebrated? What about Vietnam's models would work and not work in other political systems? And what is it about the citizens and citizen participation of Vietnam that pushes back at easy tropes and stereotypes of authoritarianism being the reason for Vietnam's success. My two guests are well-versed in these subjects and both offer very interesting takes from the perspective of journalism and academia. For more conversations like this, looking at COVID-19, its political implications, and how it's being managed in Asia, you can go to our back catalog on Android, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And for our main project, you can go to asiaarttours.com. We host essays, programs, and media from artists, academics, and activists all throughout Asia. Yes, I'm Michael Tatarski, usually go by Mike. I'm the editor-in-chief of Saigoneer, a Vietnam um, society and culture website based in Ho Chi Minh City. I've lived here for almost a decade now, and I also do a lot of freelance reporting for international publications on uh, a lot of times the environment, but also some breaking news and society. Could you walk us through a timeline of within Vietnam, uh, how COVID-19 progressed from sort of the beginning to the peak to now where it looks like these soft reopenings and what strategies or tactics were used if you had to sort of present a model um, to a listener of this podcast? Well, they recognized it almost immediately when it was in, still in Wuhan. Um, they took it very seriously. I mean, Vietnam, like other countries in the region, had experience with SARS and, um, you know, H1N1, avian flu, those types of things. So, they know not to mess around when it comes to these emerging, you know, new viruses. Um, so their their model, because they have a limited healthcare system, which I, I think we'll talk about a little later, but it can't it wouldn't be able to cope with a massive outbreak. So they um, went to containment and quarantine almost immediately. So on January twenty third, uh, Vietnam had its first two cases. There's two Chinese nationals in Saigon that had been traveling um, in the country. And that same day, they canceled all flights uh, between the country and Wuhan. Um, and then five or six days later, they suspended all, all flights between coronavirus areas in China, which by that point was, I think, most Chinese provinces. Um, and, then, so, uh, and then January 30th, they had their first Vietnamese national as uh, confirmed cases. So that brought the total to five. 
Um, and they were part of a group of workers that had been doing vocational training in Wuhan and returned uh, to Hanoi and a couple of surrounding provinces. Um, and then on February 1st, all flights between Vietnam and mainland China were suspended. Um, and to be clear, I know some people, you know, Vietnam and China have an antagonistic relationship at times, but they have very tight tourism, business, um, even political links at times. So suspending all these flights was a huge deal. China is by far Vietnam's largest tourist market. Um, something like 30% of all international arrivals annually come from China. So that pretty much wiped out a huge chunk of the tourism market immediately. Um, then on the 4th, they started quarantining all arrivals who had transited through China or been in China within the last 14 days. And this is mainland China, not uh, Hong Kong or Taiwan included. Um, so that's by early February. They're already doing large-scale quarantine of people for 14 days. Um, and this is when they also started the – so Vietnam really put a big emphasis on contact tracing, so detailed, rigorous contact tracing. I mean, one of those first Chinese nationals to test positive, they traced almost 300 people that they had interacted with in Nha Trang on the south central coast um and this is done uh the, you know vietnam's not singapore where it has uh you know a really high tech surveillance system i mean there are obviously security cameras but it's not they're not on every street corner we don't have facial recognition that sort of thing so this was done really in the community you know war level officials uh finding talking to neighbors finding out who had contacted you know, come into contact with people, anyone who was tested positive. Um, so you started seeing, you know, F0, F1, F2, these different levels of contacts. Anytime there was a new case announced, they immediately started tra tracking everybody who had been in some level of contact. Because um, that was another part of the strategy. It was keep people out, quarantine the people who did make it in, and then any cases that were here, find everybody who had been in contact with them and isolate the, you know, close level contacts. Um, then it progressed through February. There were 16 cases, most linked to that those returning workers from Wuhan, um, which is obviously a very low low number for a country with um, an extensive border with China. And again, those close business and tourism ties. ties. Um, and at the end of February, those 16 initial cases recovered, and we went over a little over three weeks without any reported cases, which was pretty impressive. Um, and then kind of the second wave started on March 6th um, when a young Vietnamese woman returned to Hanoi from London. She had traveled uh, to the Milan Fashion Show. I think I traveled in France as well. Um, and this, this actually kicked off some of the uglier side. So overall, Vietnam's response has been really impressive, but there have been a couple dark spots. So this young woman who returned, she's from a wealthy family and... She almost immediately got doxxed, basically. Her name was published even in mainstream media. Um, all sorts of rumors started that she had been, you know, partying and basically intentionally um, going out while she knew she was thick, sick. And some facts did come out. It, did, it does seem like she did lie about her travel um, history when she arrived in Hanoi, which that's obviously a huge problem. But this and then a couple of ensuing cases, there have been pretty ugly reactions on social media. Um, but beyond that, after, afterwards, um, a lot of other cases came from that one London to Hanoi flight. Um, and in the ensuing weeks, cases grew pretty quickly. I think the, the most that was ever announced in one day was 19 new cases, which again, if you look at 
uh, the U.S. where it's thousands of new cases a day. That's, you know, seems like almost nothing. Uh, but this was taken deadly seriously at every step of the way. Um, throughout March, more more countries were being arrivals from, you know, South Korea were quarantined as soon as that outbreak started there. And then Italy, Iran, um, eventually a lot of European countries, you know, entry was suspended or everyone was quarantined. And then by late March, um, anyone arriving in the country was quarantined for 14 days. Foreign arrivals were suspended. And we're still in that situation now where it's basically only returning Vietnamese nationals are able to enter the country. And anyone, they're all quarantined for 14 days as well. So as the outbreak progressed around the world, you know, travel restrictions got stricter and stricter. Uh, yeah, at one point there was almost 80,000 people quarantined in the country, about half at government facilities, the, the rest at um, home or in hotels. Um, and yeah, by the start of this month, the country was more or less closed by, you know, to access to, by land or air. And um, yeah, that was a strategy, just try to keep it out as the outbreak progressed globally and then contain it hard uh, for what was found here. As a result of that, there's been 268 cases. So the second wave, it went from 16 to 268. There hasn't been a new case in five days as we're recording this, and 214 of those people have recovered. So there's um, you know, only about 40 actually active cases right now in the country. A lot of the tension um, in the United States has openly been traced back to uh, economic demands where partially the U.S. has had a very limited uh, stimulus response um, for, in proportion to the surge in unemployment, joblessness, and homelessness that's resulted from this crisis. Um, in a Vietnam that um, I've heard described a lot of ways, post-socialist, post-communist, um, state capitalist, Leaving those ideologies aside, um, what has the Vietnamese stimulus response looked like um, in relation to this crisis, and how has it um, affected or interacted with people? How has it supported the people who in the U.S. Um, are not seeing, um, are being given very dire choices of basically work or die? Yeah, I mean, it, it's still playing out here. Um, I mean, the Finance Ministry announced a $2.6 billion package a week or two ago, um, effect, uh, expected to help impact about 20 million people. Um, so Vietnam has about 96 million people, in case no, people don't know that. Um, so that's intended to give about $50 a month to uh, people that are considered poor or near poor, um, which I know doesn't sound like a lot to listeners in the West, but the really you know low income brackets here uh, the minimum wage in most of the country is only about 150 to 200 dollars a month so 50 dollars is substantial for quite a few people um that's kind of been the main you know sort of direct payment stimulus there's been a lot of talk of uh, tax breaks for companies um, that sort of thing but i think a lot of this is still remaining to be seeing how it plays out, you know, the tourism industry, which I mentioned, which is quite big here and has been growing rapidly in recent years, um, that has been decimated. I haven't heard of um, what the plan is for hotels or, you know, tour companies or tour guides, those, those sorts of, because they've basically been out of work since February um, or even January for some of them. Um, 
So I think those sectors are really going to struggle. I mean, I've seen, I think it was in the Atrang at some point a few weeks ago, the unemployment rate and the, or the hotel occupancy rate was about 98%. <clears throat> and that's a major resort city. So that means I, you know, presumably thousands of hotel staff or furloughed or unemployed or just, just not working. Um, and I mean, Vietnam does have a big, obviously the social dynamics are very different from the US. There's a lot of multi-generational households. So a lot of these people who may not have work can probably just, uh, okay, I don't know about a lot, but some can certainly go back to their hometown and stay with their family and then multiple generations can kind of pool their resources and sustain each other. Um, but there will be a lot of pain for a lot of people. I mean, street food vendors, anybody kind of in the informal economy who relies on tourism or crowds of office workers to eating lunch every day, uh, those ha that has not been happening. Um, those people that are sort of very vulnerable, um, some of them will be getting some of this money, but I assume we'll be hearing more at some point about further um, economic aid for the people most hurt by this. So something I've heard from uh, in experts who are quite impartial, so these would be people as varied as those working for the Wall Street Journal, uh, two individuals who've written for Science Magazine, they've all said sort of uh, unequivocally that having universal health care or at least uh, a universal health care program in regards to this pandemic uh, is essential for managing it. So we've seen a lot of different models ranging from the sort of temporary hospitals uh, in certain cities in China um, to Korea, mass producing, mass producing tests, making it so anyone basically who needs one can get one uh, to a Taiwan that has commandeered its, its uh, private uh, capital for the mass production of PPE and masks um, that it then delivers to its citizens at a, a subsidized controlled cost and is now exporting um, in, in what's being known informally as mask diplomacy to bolster its reputation on the international stage. When we look at the United States, the criticisms I've heard are that its balkanized and privatized healthcare system cannot function in a pandemic. That is something where um, it would be interesting to know your thoughts as an American who's likely experienced U.S. healthcare. What would be very shocking to an average American who did need to quarantine in Vietnam or uh, who needed to get tested? What has been the response of the government's healthcare system, which you've said does not have the amount of resources of a U.S. in terms of raw capital, but it seems like the model of universal response, even with a small amount of capital, has had a huge impact. So could you unpack a few of those things for us in terms of healthcare testing and these larger questions of universal versus the privatized system in the United States? So again, healthcare system here has limited resources. The government's aware of that. So that that's one part of the reason why they took such uh, immediate and, you know, important action at the start is because they, they knew they needed to get a handle on this immediately because if they didn't, you know, hospitals would have been overwhelmed and, uh, um, yeah, it just would, it would, it would have been a really bad situation. Um, so in terms of testing, uh, Vietnam does not have the resources of South Korea. They can't just roll out 20,000 tests a day for, you know, whoever wants one basically. Um, so it's very targeted. Um, the numbers have gone up a lot. They've now tested about 163,000 people. That's um, up from around 30,000 just like I think about two weeks ago. 
So that has ramped up, but it, again, it's been very targeted. So um, there was a hospital, for example, one of the biggest hospitals in the country in Hanoi had turned into a cluster a couple of weeks ago. And they said, okay, we're testing a thousand employees there and 4,000 patients that have come through it. Um, and they did that within a couple of days. So it's very targeted when they when a cluster develops or if there's a commune or a, you know, a, a village that there's a number of cases, they're gonna, they say, okay, we're testing everybody there as fast as we can. Um, so there'll be these spurts in testing where as things develop, uh, it's again, they go at the one health expert explained it to me as they try to manage everything. And then as soon as there's a problem somewhere, all the resources go towards that. And thankfully there's only been a couple of kind of clusters developing at once. So they've been able to do that pretty effectively. Um, and testing is free of charge uh, for everybody. Um, treatment, for foreigners, foreigners have to pay for their coronavirus treatment. For Vietnamese, all the treatment is free. Um, so healthcare in the state, in, in Vietnam, is, there's definitely two tiers of it. There is the public health system, um, which is a lot of amazing doctors in. I mean, Vietnam has no deaths, so the treatment has been very effective. Um, facilities in, outside of the major cities can be pretty poor, um, at like provincial level hospitals and clinics can be pretty uh, dire, to be honest. Even if the doctors are well-trained, uh, the facilities, you know, the money is just not there. Um, within cities like Saigon, Hanoi, Da Nang, there are private clinics and private hospitals that are up there with what you would see in, you know, Bangkok or Singapore. Um, can also be very expensive. Uh, you know, if you don't have proper insurance, it's it can be up there with, you know, the U.S. in terms of cost, depending on what you're doing. Or maybe not the U.S., but very pricey. Um, but the government has kind of taken command of the treatment and testing of this, or not kind of, they have. So testing, if you get tested, it's free. Uh, granted, you can't just, like, say, I want to be tested because they don't have, um, you know, the resources for those test kits. But then in terms of uh, medical gear, I suppose it's a little similar to Taiwan. Um, kind of right at the start, they said... You know, we're not going to allow there to be price gouging or runs on anything. Um, you know, I could walk down to a pharmacy right now and easily purchase a pack of masks for a few dollars, no problem. Um, and Vietnam has also begun exporting. You know, they've donated masks to a few European countries. They sent um, medical gowns to to the U.S., hundreds of thousands of them all produced here. Some, you know, textile factories have switched to making masks or medical gear because um, obviously the international, you know, supply chain and economy is disrupted. Um, one of the largest private corporations is making ventilators now, um, for the domestic market. And I assume they'll also probably export some of those. Um, so, you know, Vietnam's healthcare system is certainly not perfect as, you know, no countries is, but when it came to treating this virus, um, it was made very equitable. I mean, you know, foreigners do have to pay for their treatment. That's I get, that can part can be debated, I suppose, but testing is free and very targeted, and yeah, so the state kind of is in control of it, I suppose. For for foreigners who do have to pay for the cost of treatment or quarantine, uh, is it noticeably different than how an American might experience that um, if they didn't have insurance coverage in the U.S.? Um, I don't have like hard numbers to to say that. Um, I but. Unless you went to one of the really high-end uh, medical clinics, it would certainly be substantially less than in the U.S. And most of these cases have been relatively mild. You know, most have not 
some have gotten some have become critical, but most have not required ventilator or intubation or those sorts of procedures that would obviously make it more expensive. Um, yeah, and if you're quarantined in a government facility that you don't that's not paid for, uh, you don't have to pay for it uh, since it's a government facility. If there have been times where foreigners have opted to stay to be quarantined at a hotel instead, and that they do have to pay for, but quarantine in government facilities is free. It's just the treatment that you have to pay for if, if it comes to that. From reports uh, in places like uh, South Korea, um, Japan, Taiwan, Vietnam, it seems like there's nothing of the um, widespread racism that, that's uh, become violent in numerous instances across these Anglo countries. And I, I just wanted to ask for Vietnam, what issues, if any, have foreigners encountered? What has racism looked like um, in a Vietnam, and has it reached any of these levels I've described uh, in these Anglo countries? There have been some issues. I certainly not as widespread, or uh, I mean, Vietnam is generally quite a safe country, so not the violence that you might hear about elsewhere. Um, I mean, when the when the when we were in the first stage of the outbreak, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Vietnam does have a difficult relationship with China. Um, a lot of Vietnamese will happily tell you that they hate Chinese people. Um, so there were some issues with, again, not widespread, but some businesses. I, I saw one, a bar uh, here in Saigon that had a sign out front saying they weren't, they wouldn't welcome Chinese guests. So there were reports of that sort of thing happening. And then with the second wave, when a lot of these new cases were imported from Europe, uh, there were quite a few uh, reports of businesses turning away uh, white people uh, or for, you know, people perceived as foreign, whatever you want to make of that word. Um, and then there's been some attacks, verbal, not, not physical, on um, foreigners who had the virus. So for exa example, some friends of mine live in an apartment complex. Uh, they sent me a couple of screenshots from a guy who is a foreigner. He had coronavirus, recovered, and was back in his apartment in that complex um, to self-quarantine for after after recovering and he was getting some rather vile messages from other people living in the complex you know calling him a dirty foreigner a dirty foreign dog and that sort of thing so that is not widespread i want to make that clear but it has happened um and been directed at foreigners of kind of different extractions not not even just white um that being said, I mean, kind of when some of that was becoming an issue, the government did come out and say, you know, this is we obviously this is uh, this is wrong. Um, if a business is doing this, you can report it, and they're supposed to get in trouble. I don't know how much of enforcement there's actually been of that. So there are issues, but certainly not. Um, you know, you're not going to see that really from the media here. I will say there's been a couple articles that have been a little strange in the way they portrayed uh, foreigners and some of the interactions with the virus here. Um, so yes, issues, I think, again, as with in almost any country, but nothing violent, at least that I've heard of, that would be that would be shocking. Um, it's more just kind of personal, personally insulting people or the odd business, you know, turning people away. But that, I think that's starting to calm down now that, you know, we're five days without a new case. And hopefully, fingers crossed, are kind of seeing a light at the end of the end of the tunnel of the outbreak in Vietnam, at least. Moving to the tail end of our conversation, um, what we've heard from uh, journalists who were recently uh, forced to leave China, so Paul Moser uh, recently on the Daily Podcast, he was sort of 
saying that part of what um, uh, these countries will use the virus as in their successful handling. So uh, countries that I think we could say, broadly speaking, are autocratic. There is some wiggle room. Obviously, um, Vietnam you know, will still shift leaders out. It, they, we don't have the chairman for life model like we do in, in China currently under Xi Jinping. But um, we'll use this to sort of bolster the case for their model. So Vietnam, very likely because of the success it's had, leadership will sort of double down on, well, this model is successful for everything. So they've had success for the pandemic. They'll then use that as an excuse to say, well, you should trust us with the economy, with whatever policies we're trying to put in place in these areas that are have no relation to the virus. So um, for Vietnam, what about this response to COVID-19 speaks to some of the ways that um, as a model for taking care of a society, so some of the things we've talked about with healthcare, with these well-regulated responses of entering and exiting supermarkets or these very well-managed quarantines, what about Vietnam's model actually maybe could other countries learn uh, to be less fearful of or even emulate? And in what ways is, you know, using this model not applicable to other situations where it would be good maybe for more social dissent in Vietnam or it would be good for um, more criticism to be levied about how the economy functions? Um, so I know that's a big question, but I'm curious uh, if anything comes to mind about what we should applaud Vietnam for both about COVID-19, but maybe other issues where it doesn't get enough um, credit, and where should we still be applying criticism? I'll, I'll admit, when the outbreak kind of began here, I was fairly skeptical of the numbers. Um, it just seemed kind of hard to believe, given, again, all of the links with China, and it literally has a huge border with it that is widely used. Um, but as time has gone on, I mean, I've I so officials have said that they there are cases that have been or infections that have been missed. So are there more than 268 infections in the country? Yes, surely. No, you know, no country is catching all of them. But uh, I've seen a lot of skepticism, continued skepticism on. I mean, I'll, okay, Twitter. That's the social media outlet I use a lot. I use the most of generally Western reporters or people simply dismissing the numbers here because it's a single party state, which, um, I mean, okay, you can do that, but there's never any counter evidence provided. And people, a lot of people don't really seem to have a grasp of, you know, the response that I just laid out um, over the last, what, three months, three plus months now since January. Um, so if you want to dismiss the numbers fine you that's one thing but you know i it's not nobody you're not doing your due diligence when you just say that and then don't talk about um all, all the steps that have been taken by the government and some people have kind of dismissed it because the testing numbers you know given the population size are relatively low but again you have to take all the i didn't even mention this but schools never reopened um after the lunar new year holiday and early February. They've just, some are starting to reopen now in a couple provinces that I haven't seen any cases, but they just never came back from that holiday. Um, so millions of students have been either learning online or 
not, I don't, not learning, I, I guess, since uh, January, more or less, um, which that was one of the biggest early steps that I, I left out, actually. But yeah, so taking all that into account, um, Vietnam deserves a ton of credit and how they responded to this. Um, and it's, again, I guess not surprising that it isn't getting more attention, but it was, it's gotten to be pretty noticeable when, I mean, obviously Singapore is kind of exploding at the moment, but there's been so many articles about South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, all of which deserve credit for how they've handled this. And it's not a competition, you know, we're not like racing for headlines, but kind of the overlooking of Vietnam is amazing <laughs> because I think it could, you know, is it a good model for wealthier countries? I'm not sure because they should have the resources to really confront this in terms of treatment and testing head on and maybe not have to do the, um, you know, some would say draconian travel restrictions or quarantine. But in terms of countries with a similar level of resources, I think it's a really effective model. I mean, how could you not say that looking at the numbers? Um, you know, even if you say the numbers should be five times higher, that's still way lower than, you know, I, I would venture to say any other country of this population size. I don't, I can't say that for certain, but so certainly in how it's confronted this virus, you know, and if these are going to be things that, I mean, we've seen what, two or three emerging viral outbreaks in the last 20 years. So this won't be the last one. This has to be a model that people will at least consider uh, for next time something like this happens. Um, and then, I mean, and of course there is room for criticism. I mean, in a way, uh, you know, uh, outside of the coronavirus, just in the general way, criticism or even just light discontent <laughs> can be handled. Um, I mean, I'm going to try it a little carefully here for my own safety. Um, but before this started, the, it had kind of been a rough year or so for the government. Uh, there have been some pretty controversial uh, laws proposed. There were major protests a couple of years ago, which are very rare. Um, there was a land dispute in Hanoi in early January that turned violent and, uh, you know, very controversial um, there. And so this, I, I'm very curious to see how this plays out um, if it continues that Vietnam handles this really well because they're choosing new, the government's choosing new leadership early next year. Um, so, you know, will this sort of improve trust or belief in the government? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it will to some extent outside of health or public health. That remains to be seen. But certainly, I mean, I've seen there's been a lot of support on social media for particularly for the deputy prime minister, who runs the national steering committee on, you know, fighting the virus. He's been kind of lauded as really competent, like a, so through and through technocrat. I think he has a master's degree in some sort of science field. Um, and, you know, officials here, they don't go for publicity. They, so they're not, uh, which is, tough in normal times because it means they just basically don't talk to people but right now they're basically just doing their job to the best of their ability and it's coming out really well um but certainly their response to the coronavirus could be modeled um elsewhere in the future i think lastly um you alluded to that there's a long history of antagonism between uh, china and vietnam for various historical uh reasons um and recently reporting has come out from uh, multiple outlets, I think predominantly the New York Times, um, but also Brian Eiler, who's written for many years about the Mekong and the politics of the river, um, that Chinese uh, managed hydroelectric dams have 
uh, deliberately for reasons of uh, wanting to benefit most from uh, control over uh, things like hydroelectricity or water levels have essentially um, artificially or, or deliberately kept low um, Mekong River levels in places like Vietnam, Thailand, and other countries that depend on this river, leading to very high levels of drought and huge impacts uh, on these countries. Could you outline a bit for going forward in the future how, um, in addition to COVID-19 and its origins uh, in Wuhan, how uh, the fiasco over the Mekong dams may be another flashpoint between China and Vietnam uh, in terms of conflict. Yeah, this has been, I mean, if not for coronavirus, the what's going on with the Mekong River would be the biggest story in Vietnam. Well, maybe other than the, the South China Sea or EC, as it's called here, which is also another flashpoint with China. Um, but yeah, the Mekong Delta has been undergoing a severe drought um, and Partially, that's climate change. We're getting less rain. The rainy season is erratic um, in southern Vietnam now. Uh, partially, it's internal development policies. So, you know, too much water going to rice production, that sort of thing. But the upstream dams are a primary cause of that as well. You know, the Mekong Delta is at the very end of the river, obviously. So they get the shortest end of an already short stick when it comes to uh, this water flow. And, yeah, I've done some reporting on this report Um from eyes on earth and it's pretty shocking i mean it shows it shows rather definitively last year that china held back water for whatever reason when the lower mekong basin of you know lao thailand vietnam cambodia was going through severe drought um you know the river in northern thailand was at its lowest level in a century um and at the time china said they were going through a drought along the upper mekong which satellite data which you can't fake really is now showing to be untrue. Um, so of course the coronavirus is kind of taking everyone's attention right now, but I think especially if Vietnam comes out of this again, we, you know, we're not going to be reopening borders or they, they can't really do that soon without, you know, reinfecting uh, the country. But um, between the EC dispute where China has just created two new administrative divisions on islands that Vietnam claims and the Mekong River issue. I mean, these are going to be two huge issues uh, for the foreseeable future. I mean, there's not really an easy solution to any of this. Um, and then, you know, there's been accusations that China is taking advantage of the coronavirus, to distracting the U.S. and, you know, other allies of Southeast Asian states uh, to push their agenda forward. You know, that's hard to prove or disprove, I suppose, but certainly um, this is going to be a big problem for Vietnam you know, in terms of security, food security, environmental security, water security, all of that moving forward. Uh, Michael, why don't you tell us a bit about um, your projects and if people enjoyed listening to you, where can they find out more about you, your journalism or the websites that you've helped create and uh, what you're trying to do with those websites? I didn't help create Second Year. Uh, I will say that right off the bat, um, but I do, I've do. i been there for a couple of years. So um, yeah, that's Saigon and then EER at the end, SaigonEar.com. Uh, we also have a podcast, just the Saigonier podcast that's available on Apple, Google, Spotify, uh, pretty, basically wherever you find podcasts. So we discuss um, Vietnamese cultural issues, history, society. We'll have, we have occasional guests. 
Uh, we're struggling a bit right now to keep it going weekly, given working from home and remotely and all of that. But we should have a new episode coming out soon. Um, and then I also write a weekly newsletter called the Vietnam Weekly. Um, I don't know, there's not a link for it, but if you find me on Twitter, um, just at Mike Tatarski, you, I, there's a link to it on there to subscribe. Um, yeah, and then I, I mean, I do freelancing for a number of publications, but I think Saganeer and Twitter are probably the easiest ways to find me. <laughs> So my name is Mai Chung and I am a PhD candidate in political science at the University of Arizona. So um, I um, study uh, social protest, social movement, and the impact of social media on the politics in authoritarian regimes. And my regional focus is East and Southeast Asia. For Vietnam, Broadly speaking, and you can take as much time with any of these questions as you'd like, how were they able to marshal such a comprehensive and seemingly effective response um, with relatively limited resources, particularly compared to um, much wealthier Western countries who at times had antagonistic relations with Vietnam but are now, in the case of the U.S. explicitly, really faltering could you explain a little bit about uh, Vietnam's model and um, any larger links that you think are interesting to tease out? So as of April 22nd, so Vietnam has like 268 reported cases with no deaths. So, uh, so far, relative to other countries, Vietnam has been successful in containing the, the coronavirus outbreak. And I think that this success lies in the government's ability to exploit the strengths and um, understand the weaknesses of the system. So the government understands that um, our weaknesses lies in the fact that our healthcare system has limited resources. So <clears throat> the uh, like Vietnam cannot uh, afford uh, massive testing and. Uh, the system cannot handle like a large number of infected cases at the same time. So if the number of cases um, in Vietnam is as was as high as in China or Korea, uh, the system cannot handle that. Uh, and we are so close to China, which makes us really vulnerable. So since from the since the beginning, the, the government has focused on aggressive preventive measures. At the same time, the government closely watches and monitors the development of the coronavirus in the country and adapt their strategy accordingly. So before moving on some of the strengths that the government has exploited to fight against the virus, I will talk a little bit about like uh, different preventive measures that have been taken. 
So Vietnam prepared for the outbreak even before the first infected case were re was reported. So in the second week of January, when we didn't have any reported case, the Ministry of Health issued urgent information on outbreak prevention to relevant government agencies and hospitals and clinics uh, nationwide. And when there were six reported cases, the Prime Minister declared a war on the virus. So the government started to close uh, schools. In fact, uh, students haven't gone to school um, at all in, during the spring semester. The government also required people traveling abroad, that's coming home from abroad, to be quarantined for, quarantined for 14 days. They also had a complete chasing of contacts with the infected case. So in early April, when it was impossible to, to chase uh, um, the infected cases, then the government uh, implemented social distancing for like two or three weeks, and we have a relaxed social distancing thing re recently. Three strengths that the government has exploited uh, in fighting against the virus, the nature of the centralized state, the mobilization of nationalism, and the use of propaganda. So Vietnam is a centralized state in which the local governments are required to follow central uh, policies, but have some flexibility in implementing policies based on their local context. So during the coronavirus, the provincial and local authorities were allowed to lock down village and communes and streets following advisory notice from the Ministry of Health. So in February or March, you can see a lot of uh, provincial governments uh, had made decision to lock down the whole streets or the whole, whole village when they feel that, that this locality would pose a threat to the society. I think the second strength is that the government has successfully mobilized nationalism, which helped galvanize every individual in the society to fight against the virus. So the wars against like American and French force, and also re recent re uh, protests against China uh, have shown that the Vietnamese people have a high national, high nationalist spirit, and um, what united uh, people to work together is nationalism. And uh, in the fight against coronavirus, um, the nationalism is equated with following government's guidelines and supporting government's uh, strategies to deal with the coronavirus. So you can see popular status on social media in Vietnam during the coronavirus outbreak is a staying home is loving your country. So people share this vigorously on social media and then it makes uh, people feel like, oh, if you love your country, you should stay at home. That means that you have the government to fight against the virus. Because uh, people feel that um, if you have been supporting the government uh, to fight against the virus, it's showing your love for the country. I think people don't feel uncomfortable when police or military office or local government are going to their house asking if they have relatives, 
traveling abroad, uh, they would they would feel they would not feel uncomfortable, and more likely they feel that it's the duties of the people of the government, and then their duty is to report any suspected case to the government. A lot of American uh, media has either underreported Vietnam, or there's been a lot of. Uh focus on on a country like Singapore, which has long been talked about in a really idyllic terms from uh, particularly the Silicon Valley and the uh, Wall Street uh, capitalist class. But Vietnam, which has these histories of antagonism through no fault of its own uh, with Western countries, particularly the U.S., there hasn't been a lot of uh, media coverage or the media coverage that we're seeing uh, about Vietnam will oftentimes use tropes of authoritarianism or surveillance or that uh, Vietnamese people are just dominated by the state. And I'm wondering if you could push back a little bit on this while still acknowledging, you know, the, re the very real structures of Vietnam's government today. Um, where do you see that we can criticize or push back on some of these tropes? And where should we just look at in terms of the science of government, of governmentality, that some of these responses are just very good, common sense, tech, technocratic uh, management, and um, that we should be giving more credit to Vietnam? Uh, I think that there's some truth to that, but I don't think it tells a whole story. Um, so I don't think that Vietnam's success likes simply uh, is simply a matter of like obedience obedience on loyalty of the citizen to the authorities um so we have to remember that the communist party communist party has led the country for like 19 years or or 45 years over 45 years since a reunification in 1975 and I think that all the years of the Communist Party leadership has a, created a political culture in which citizens entrust the government with dealing with crisis. So the party leadership in the wars and its ability to lift Vietnam out of poverty has, has given its credibility to handle, to handle crisis. So when there, there are crises in Vietnam, like the natural disaster, Wars or now the coronavirus, citizen knows that uh, the central, the government is a legitimate actor in the society to to deal with the the crisis. So the party gained its legitimacy uh, from its uh, from the wars against French and American force. And so I I I think by declaring a war on the coronavirus, the the party has emphasized uh, against that is. Uh, leadership in any crisis that the country uh, that the country faced. Um, so I think Vietnamese people trust the government in dealing with the crisis, and they want to help the government to deal with this. Uh, not just because they feel that they they are, they are fear the government, or they are just out of obedience. And uh, you can see during this crisis, many individuals enterprise and organization are willing to donate money to the state to help the state fight against the coronavirus. And another, another 
characteristic in the Vietnamese context is the social pressures that people face in 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 life, um, especially peer pressure or social pressure from family members or relatives, because now nationalism is equated with like helping the government to fight against the virus or uh, and that means you show your love for the country so if any individual who who like do not follow the guidelines or who behaves in a way that negatively affect the so society they will be labeled as unpatriotic or they will be under pressure social strong social pressure so i think that it also helps people to work together to fight against the virus. I want to just uh, want to say one more thing. One of the things I think uh, that uh, makes Vietnam successful is um, the propaganda from the state. So state media, as media in Vietnam is basically controlled by the state. So from the beginning, state media disseminated information about the virus, the severity of the virus, and also how to prevent, how to avoid the virus, like have a propaganda on washing hand, wearing mask, something like that. So these, um, all these information, this information makes people perceive the threat of the virus to the national security. So people know that, oh, it's a serial thing. It's not like a normal flu. Uh, I think that's uh, also partly explain why Vietnam has been successful. So I just want to, for Vietnam, clarify with someone who's an expert on the subject. Um, when you say propaganda, what does it look like in a Vietnam in terms of does Vietnam have these sort of very integrated systems like a, like a WeChat um, where there's a heavy degree of digital payments that also are integrated with social media and that it has a very complicated censoring apparatus. Facebook, you can use it in Vietnam, but obviously there's some stipulations to that. And we saw all these really, you know, funny and cute sort of viral videos coming out of Vietnam of like, wash your hands, keep, keep distance. So for uh, maybe could you give us a bit of a spectrum and a systemic overview of what propaganda looks like in Vietnam and how maybe it was altered from its original purpose, whatever that was in terms of systems the government wanted to monitor or manage, to be put to use in this way for controlling this pandemic? First thing to say that freedom of press in Vietnam is limited. So media, newspaper, or television channels are owned by the state or related to the state. So it's, we don't have like independent media channels. And uh, the people, the government use these um, media channels to promote the government's um, strategy or uh, policies. Yeah, and then ideologies, um, and uh, but they still give some. Uh, but with the rise of the internet, then uh, the Vietnamese people now have an alternative avenues for public discussion, especially uh, Facebook. So Facebook is not uh, banned in Vietnam, 
um, but I'm sure there was uh, there's uh, there is censorship uh, over what uh, citizens uh, can write. So you can write uh, critiques of policies, uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's risky to write strong critiques of the regime or like uh, discuss things about regime change or uh, using Facebook to mobilize people uh, to protest. Yeah, that would be risky. Uh, social media also helps the government uh, to monitor local affairs too because in Vietnam, um, with the restricted in the press, the restricted uh, freedom of press, then um, it's a bit it's challenging for the central government to monitor local governments. Uh, and the central government often have to depend on reporting system from the local government. But um, sometimes the local authority they miss a report or uh, wrongly report what is going on with the local government. So like Facebook uh, could provide the central government uh, a tool to monitor the local affairs. So for example, when uh, people are not happy with the local government, they might express that on, the, on Facebook, on social media, and then it can have, and then the uh, central government may be informed about that issues. What you just said about Facebook is really interesting where that, and could you clarify this, it's used as a tool to sort of double check what the local governments are doing. So if I'm one of the leading technocrats of uh, Danang and I send false information about the impact of tourism only being positive, would the, the central government then sort of cross-reference that with what people are saying on Facebook, where maybe local merchants are complaining about uh, platforms like um, uh, Uber or um, that tourists are taking the best beaches where people used to fish? Could you explain a little bit about this complicated relationship, it sounds like, between getting fragmented responses from local officials and then how the central government might cross-reference that with social media to sort of make sure that they're getting honest feedback. Similar to China, so the central government in Vietnam is facing with monitoring a problem in which it's challenging for them to monitor or control the local, the local governments. So I think social media provides a tool for the central government to to, to monitor like local performance. I'm not sure, I don't have a research or data on how it used to cross-check information, but uh, there's a research on how social media have central government get information about some land dispute in Vietnam or like in, in, in the pre-internet age because they can because the central government cannot monitor the local government sometimes local government can distort the implementation of policy in a way that benefit themselves like in recent year you see land a lot of land dispute in vietnam and land dispute have become a main conflict between citizens and the local governments with the in social media now when people protest they will 
share the video or information on Facebook and then it can inform the central government of the protest right away. And then the, the central government can intervene in the protest and find out what is wrong uh, with the local government, what's the problem at the local levels. And uh, whereas in the previous internet age, maybe it takes, it would take some time, take, it would take some time for the central government to be informed about the protest. Prior to COVID-19 in Vietnam, so we can look at uh, all these nations. To have a nation, you sort of have this implicit, I like this term, social contract, um, essentially between the citizen, the state, and capital. In Vietnam, where we can speak about it uh, as being well-documented, where did we see some breakdowns or violations of this social contract? What were some of the conflicts prior to COVID-19 that were, that were causing friction between the citizen, the capital, and state? I think before the corona, before COVID-19, in recent years, uh, there, was, there have been some prominent issues that might affect public trust uh, for the government, such as uh, widespread corruption um, and the South China Sea issues and uh, some economic issues too. So even though Vietnam has witnessed high economic growth, there, was some, there are some concerns about where the, the, the government's policy generate uh, equal economic opportunities. Like um, in last year, the, the tragic death of 39 illegal immigrants in the United Kingdom raised the issues of why having complex rules um, this raises the issue of um, equal economic opportunity. I think that uh, these, these issues before the coronavirus uh, negatively affected the public trust for the government. And uh, I see there are, I think there are two types of conflicts uh, in Vietnam. Uh, first is the conflict between the citizens and the local governments. So as I said that, like why Vietnam is a much more open state than before, so freedom of press and freedom of speech are still limited. So one, one consequence of this, of this is that it is challenging for the central government to monitor and control local governments. And the central government depends on reporting system from the local government to acquire information at, at the local level. And, but this can give incentive to the local government to distrust central policy implementation and can create conflict between citizen and local officer. So land dispute has been become popular and with loose oversight, the central government may be unable to monitor how agricultural land is distributed, taxed, uh, and recovered and compensated. But often these conflict between the citizen and the local government are often localized and protesters focus on challenging, on challenging the local government and blaming the, the local government rather than central government. And you can see so conflict between citizens and the central government and it often, they often occurs when the central government is not perceived to live up to its ideas and to represent the citizen interests. For example, the government's stance and policies toward China can create conflicts between central government and citizens. So in dealing with China, Vietnam's authority objective is like 
to avoid military conflict with the neighboring country and to enhance beneficial political and economic relationship between the two countries, but at the same time protecting Vietnam territory and interests. So, however, some people, some citizens might perceive this response to be timid and not really represent the, the people' interests. So, so that's why we have seen large-scale protests nationwide related to how the government deal with China in recent years, like in June 2018, where large-scale protests against the government draft law on special economic zone, which uh, allow 99 years land lease to foreign business and enterprise, and then people were worried that uh, that would give uh, Chinese business and enterprise a, a chance to stay for a long time in Vietnam. But all these, uh, all these conflicts that I just discussed are within boundaries, meaning that, that people demand policy change or implementation rather than changes in political system or regime changes. There, was, there, there are some very pro-democracy pro force that want to have regime change in Vietnam, but this force is rather is quite weak and uh, often is as heavily repressed by the government. It's really interesting that point you said of like, well, people can protest, but it doesn't mean they're protesting the model of the state itself. They're protesting this sort of one compartmentalized issue. And that's a very nuanced, I think, point that I wish more people made that we can have a discussion about Vietnam without deciding, all right, are we going to completely start over or are we going to just say that it's the greatest state ever? There can be nuance in these responses. So far, uh, in recent years, there have been protests, have been, I think, quite a lot of protests in Vietnam. But if you look at all these protests, they, people protest within boundaries, meaning that against uh, local governments or against the central government, but more like when the central government do not live up to what they promise, people don't protest to demand a regime changes. And so to, to return to Vietnam's public as it relates to COVID-19, we are seeing political effects in places like Taiwan, South Korea. China is, is a bit difficult to say now because they... Um, but it does look like people are also responding positively to how the government has controlled uh, COVID-19. Kerala, uh, the communist controlled, though uh, communism I'm putting quotes around, uh, state in India. Um, all these uh, successful responses do have really interesting political implications. So for a Vietnam that has a lot of skepticism thrust upon it, by uh, international media, or as you've said, sort of, there have been a lot of protests prior to COVID-19. How has the public felt uh, or reacted as far as scholars can say on things like social media or just in their day-to-day -day lives? How have they felt about their relationship to the state because it's had such an effective response to COVID-19? And do you think this will lead to what political um, effects will this have for Vietnam's government? Will it lead to more public trust? Will it lead to uh, a stronger relationship between citizen and state? What are some of the um, reactions from Vietnam's public? And what do you think are some of the implications 
of uh, the government's success? I think so far the success of the government is containing the COVID-19 has increased public trust in the government and uh, the success has strongly improved the image of the government which has been jeopardized to a certain extent after some prominent conflict over the last few years. Um, we have not had systematic research on public trust toward the government yet, but some anecdotal evidence, especially from social media, so that um, there's a huge boost in uh, public trust towards the government. Uh, for example, social media is full of status or discussion or like quotes such as like, thank you for my government, or I'm so proud of Vietnam, or uh, Vietnam is the safety country in the world. And I see that even those who are often expressed critics of the government agree that the government is doing a good job. However, how long this trust lasts depends on a few conditions. First, it depends on the government. First, like in many other countries, I think it depends on the government ability to balance strategy to handle the virus and the economic impacts. So in early April, when the government was not able to chase potential infected case, it implemented social distancing measure. And while social distancing was only for two weeks, it revealed that it could have a negative impact on those who work, on, who work in the informal sector like the government of Vietnam has support for uh, the people, for household living under the poverty line, uh, for people who fought in the revolutions and has support for, um, for like business, but um, there's no, there, there has, has, there have not been any formal support for those in the informal sector, like street vendors, are people who are not poor but could still suffer from the economic impacts and people who labor without contract. So, um, and then in social media, you see, uh, we can see some discussion on how challenging for these people in the informal sector in this um, outbreak. Uh, so at the moment, then the government has relaxed uh, social distancing measure and many provinces now can open uh, many author provincial authority have op opened their province although there are different reasons why social distancing uh, distancing has been relaxed I think that uh, economic reason is one of them because the, um, it's harder to even if the government wanna support all the people in the informal sector, it will take a lot of time to to know, like to find them or like to identify who are qualified. So if we keep social distancing for too long, it will affect um, their economic condition. Another condition that the government has to handle is corruption. And uh, recently we found that there's corruption uh, related to dealing with uh, uh, COVID-19 too. Like this week, some officers in the Hanoi Center for Disease Control have been arrested for corruption related to purchasing of testing equipment. I think whether this trust uh, can last depend on these two conditions I, I have discussed and whether uh, 
but I think public trust may pay uh, may pave pave uh, a favorable environment uh, for the government to handle other matters. Um, but it doesn't guarantee that that this trust will last forever. So it still depends on how the government deals with like underlying uh, issues in the Vietnamese governance, like corruption. So South Korea is really interesting, where Korea has these things called chaebol, which are monopolies. Uh, so things like Samsung is the easiest way to explain it. Just um, huge amounts of capital controlled by a private entity. And what uh, the chaebol did, I think, knowing that there would be a huge social backlash uh, if they didn't otherwise, but also because they're so integrated into the economy, they basically had to, is they donated huge amounts of equipment and huge amounts of money um, as a way to sort of prop up or help the state. Um, so within Vietnam, maybe without going into some of the terms you said of, of the other questions where it becomes more like a debate, but how could how did we see and how did we not see um, capital? Uh, trying to assist in this crisis. And um, in the U.S., I mean, the U.S. is very funny at the moment because there's all these things about reopening the economy. And here in Taiwan, for a lot of people, they think it's utterly insane. <laughs> they, they really don't get it. Um, but you've, you've acknowledged yourself, even in a Vietnam, that, uh, that there were these really complicated debates about, well, how long can we do a lockdown? because there are economic considerations. So I guess um, I'm curious in Vietnam for however you feel comfortable commenting on it, how did capital um, show up in this crisis in ways good and bad? Well, I think in Vietnam now there, there's, there's some big corporation that dominated the, the economy, like the Ving groups, and we sometimes consider like call them like the the word in, in Korea, Chebo for Vietnam. So they um they has this corporation has like invested in many different areas of the economy, hospitals, schools, uh, manufacturing. So it's it's like the Chebo in Korea. And during this crisis, uh, I think they they invest, they are investing in uh, manufacturing ventilators for the uh, for 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 Vietnam. At the same time, yeah, I think um, enterprise, corporation, organization, and individuals are uh, many of them are donating donating money or other material assistance to the state in the fight against the COVID nineteen. So within Vietnam. When it comes to things like mutual aid, we're seeing in 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 a U.S. where there's a huge amount of failures. I mean, we shouldn't say failures at this point. The systems were designed to fail. The U.S. has a very long history of doing things like making it very difficult to get health insurance, unemployment insurance, welfare, and so on. And these systems are failing. And what's emerging um, are things like mutual aid. Not to a degree where, you know, it, it's a fraction of the responses uh, to COVID-19, but it's still notable. You're seeing it pop up all over the world now. Um, Thailand, where 
the government has been very absent. You're seeing mutual aid. Um, in Kerala, they talked a lot about that while the government did have a, this wide systemic response, there were a lot of people just pitching in. Um, what has mutual aid looked like in Vietnam and where, for all the positive things you've had to say, where did people need to help each other out because the government was, the government or capital was either unwilling or unable to? In the, in the Vietnamese context, people rely greatly on informal social system, like informal social networks, when the state does not meet the needs of the citizen. So I have been involved in a research on the impacts of food price vol vol volatility a few years ago. And then the research showed that, say, Vietnamese people, especially who are poor and live in the rural area, depend on their neighbors or family members and relatives. Like neighbors and relatives are willing to lend money and give food to those in need. And there are cases that even neighbors or relatives have someone to build, like to repair the house or like even construct a house. So uh, these informal social networks are very important in the uh, Vietnamese society. And um, another uh, support comes from NGOs. Um, NGO can provide um, some assistant, material assistant in times of crisis too. Uh, another noteworthy characteristic in the Vietnamese context is the role of the mass organization at the village level, such as like uh, there's a women's union. These mass organizations belong to the state and membership is voluntary, but um, uh, if someone joins the, um, the union, they, they, they have a network of support. So if uh, their family has a, at least some help, like wedding, funeral, or someone is sick, then members of the organization are willing to help. And an interesting during the coronavirus is uh, we see a, a free rice ATM. So it's similar to the ATM, but you don't come there to take cash you come there to take rice so this is for poor people and the free rice for poor people and the the free rice atm was first uh, created by an entrepreneurs in one province and now it uh, these atms have been uh, like installed in many different provinces <laughs>